Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11. Of course, this morning, if you were with us uh, either in, in person or through uh, the live stream, you know I preached from uh, the first few verses of uh, this section, and uh, this evening we'll deal with verses 14 through 18 in particular, but we'll read beginning in verse 11 uh, by way of review. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. This is the Word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you will know that I've been to... Peru to do mission uh, many, many times. We, of course, did one of those trips uh, at this church uh, several years ago, uh, and uh, I'm just remembering how miserable a couple of days of that trip were uh, as uh, fever broke out amongst the team and uh, it went through us like wildfire. Uh, But I've been to Peru uh, close to 20 times, and much of that ministry took place up uh, in the mountains, uh, in uh, a region or a state called uh, Juan Cavalica, and actually in a town called Juan Cavalica. But on this particular trip that I'm remembering, uh, we did some ministry in a little dusty town called Chilca. Chilca. Uh, there we conducted a vacation Bible school, Bible school, and we also did some construction work. Part of our labors included breaking down a wall breaking down a wall with 16-pound sledgehammers. Uh, Some of the teenage boys that were on that trip were very pleased with this uh, activity, as you can uh, imagine. But we all seem to want to get a little frustration out, uh, breaking down this this wall. Uh, It was wonderful to see all the men, both uh, American and Peruvian, assisting in the destruction of this concrete and rock wall. It was hard work. It was not nearly as hard as another kind of wall demolition that we read about in our text for this evening. That is, breaking down the invisible walls that exist between man and God and between man and man. These relationships, these human relationships in marriages, within families, in churches, and between ethnic groups often see major walls Going up Over the course of 20-plus uh, years of full-time ministry, it's extraordinary to see the kinds of walls that can be built up in people's lives and human relationships. Uh, those of you who are in your latter years, um, you will know, perhaps even in your own experience, but perhaps in your family or amidst friends, that there can be walls that are built up and have been growing for decades the reality. Sadly, there are usually walls under construction in most 
human relationships. Indeed, mankind builds walls on top of walls, fostering ever-increasing measures of alienation and suspicion and distrust and hostility. We all know what it's like to harbor something, to, uh, to, to allow something to, to, to get locked in and to begin to grow. And uh, it's like a wall where bricks are being placed on one by one. Not an exaggeration to say that one of the defining characteristics of fallen humanity is the deep hostility and enmity that, that we often have toward one another. This is precisely why throughout history we have seen so many wars and heard so many rumors of, of wars. In the 20th century alone, America witnessed two world wars with tens of millions of people dying. Of course, there was the Korean War and the Vietnam War and the war in Iraq. These are just the ones we are most familiar with. There, there have been and currently are dozens of, of small wars taking place around the world all of the time. In addition to wars, another evidence of hostility toward one another is the need for so many attorneys and courts and judges. Where it used to be you could shake a person's hand and, and gain their word, and that word and that reputation meant something, uh, today it's a much different story. If we were at peace with one another, we wouldn't need millions of attorneys. Anton Chekhov, a 19th century Russian author, once wrote, quote, The world perishes not from bandits and fires, but from hatred, hostility, and all these petty squabbles. Chekhov is right, but only partially. You see, mankind's hostility towards one another is causing great trouble in the world. And the reasons for this hostility are endless. Nevertheless, and this is the point, this is really the, the, the takeaway. All of mankind's hostility towards one another can be traced back to one root cause, and that is the wall of hostility that separates mankind from God. The wall of hostility that separates mankind from God. The biggest root problem, the root problem of man having hostility towards man is that man has hostility towards God. And there will never be peace between men if there is not first peace between God and men. All of mankind's problems ultimately stem from his alienation and separation from God. This all started when Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden. And it continues to this day. This is why uh, we need to be careful when we listen to the news and, and, and hear all of the political pundits uh, and their polarized statements. Um, this is why we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to, uh, to, to think... Um, like the political pundits that we uh, may listen to to stay informed uh, by uh, in our current cultural uh, climate uh, because they don't think about this. All they think about is how right we are and how wrong they are, and there's no godly thinking taking place. We know that the root cause of all hostility is found in the fact that man is alienated from God. You see, shortly after the fall, Adam was blaming Eve for his sin, and Cain murdered Abel. How quickly did that hostility arise in human relationships? The passage before us this evening, however, gives us hope, doesn't it? Here God's Word teaches us that through the death of Christ, two major walls have been broken down. Through the death of Christ, two major walls have been broken down. The wall of hostility between God and man and the wall of hostility between man and man. That's what the gospel brings to us. And before we unpack this rich text, it's important for us to briefly take notice of the structure of this chapter. Again, we touched upon it this morning, we can divide the chapter really into two sections. Probably all of your Bibles do just that. The dividing is between verse 10 and verse 11. In the first section, we are taught the spiritual condition of mankind, both Jew and Gentile alike, spiritually dead in sin 
enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and by nature, objects of God's holy wrath. Verses 1 through 10 are broken up, however, by two powerful words in verse 4. Those two words, but God. I love how uh, in the first section we have the words, but God. And then in the section we're looking at this morning and this evening, we have, but now. Two words we see in Romans chapter 6 as well. It's, it's uh, really you should uh, uh, perk up and, 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 and sort of sit up and And get out your highlighter anytime you see those words, because here we see the contrast of the old life compared to the new life in Christ. But now, but God, though you Ephesian believers were by nature all of those things described in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God had mercy on you because of the greatness of his love and the richness of his mercy. He saved you through Christ. Whatever struggles, whatever problems that you are enduring in your life, and there are many of them in this congregation, know this, your greatest problem has been solved. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In the second section, we are taught specifically of the spiritual condition of the Gentiles. We learned about that this morning in verses 11 and 12, these uncircumcised Gentiles were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the people of Israel, strangers to God's covenant promises, without hope and without God in this world. Then we come to verse 13, a verse that begins like verse 4, but now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the focus of the chapter then, isn't it? You were once in this condition, but God. You were once without God, but now. Let us be reminded of what Paul is underscoring here, namely that salvation is the result of God's action and not our action, not by our work. Salvation is the work of God, not by our work, not by our virtue, not by our good intentions. That's why God gets all the glory forever and ever. Indeed, this section says in verses 1 through 10, and chapter 1 as well, we are saved unto the praise of his glorious grace. A hymn writer in 1742 expressed it this way. By grace alone shall I inherit that blissful home beyond the skies. Works count for naught. The Lord incarnate has won for me the heavenly prize. Salvation by his death he wrought. His grace alone my pardon bought. We're keeping these things in mind. Let's turn now to verses 14 through 18. And our two main headings are these, if you're taking notes this evening. Christ, our peace, breaking down the walls of hostility at the cross. Christ, our peace, breaking down the walls of hostility at the cross. And then secondly, Christ, the preacher of peace, proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Christ, the preacher of peace, proclaiming the gospel to the nations. First of all, Christ, our peace, breaking down the walls of hostility at the cross. Look with me again at verses 14 and the beginning of 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Verse 14 begins by stating that Christ himself is our peace. He not only provides us with peace, He is our peace. Christ is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace because through His blood, He has purchased peace with God for us. And He provides us with peace peace within and fosters peace in the context of the church. Indeed, here we learn that there is no true peace apart 
from Christ. That is a big and a Christocentric view of the world and of history. That there is no peace, no true and lasting peace apart from Christ. Have all the peace talks you want to have in Brussels. True peace, lasting peace will never come apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is peace. He is the prince of peace. Of course, we pray that by God's common grace, there will be some semblance of diplomacy and peace between nations. But we know ultimately that there is no true and lasting peace apart from Christ. The rest of the section really unpacks this reality. And there are four ways in which Christ has become our peace. Four ways in which Christ has become our peace. First of all, the destruction of the wall of hostility. The destruction of the wall of hostility. If you look with me again at verse 14, you'll see Paul's use of an illustration or analogy to make a very important theological point. He says there, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The question is, what is this dividing wall of hostility that Paul is referring to? Well, the answer to that is the wall that separated the inner courtyards of the Jewish temple from the outermost courtyard, which was called the courtyard of the Gentiles. You see, those who are reading Paul's letter would immediately see what's going on here they would have a picture in their mind of what all of this looked like. You see, this wall, this this wall um, that separated the inner courtyards of the Jewish temple from the outermost courtyard, which was called the courtyard of the Gentiles, this wall was symbolic of the great separation between Jews and Gentiles. The temple that the Apostle Paul would have been familiar with was the one built by Herod the Great the one which replaced the older, less glorious temple built during the time of the prophet Nehemiah. James Boyce helpfully describes the layout of the Temple Mount so we can get a picture of this as we think about what Paul is saying here. Boyce writes this, quote, The temple sat raised on a platform of what is today still called the Temple Mount. The temple was surrounded by courts. The innermost court was called the court of the priests because only male members of the priestly tribe of Levi were to enter it. The next court was the court of Israel. It could be entered by any male Jew. After this, there was the court of the women, which any Jew could enter and which was called the court of the women because it was as far as a woman could go in this hierarchy. From the court of the women, one descended five steps to a level area in which there was erected a five-foot stone barricade that went around the temple enclosure. Then, after another level space, there were 14 more steps that descended to the court of the Gentiles, end quote. So according to the Jewish historian Josephus, the great wall that separated the Jewish and Gentile courtyards were marked at intervals by inscriptions that basically said that any non-Jew or Gentile that passes this point will be punished the death penalty. The wall, you see, was the symbol of that great hostility and enmity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. This was not the only wall or barrier with symbolic significance in the temple complex, was it? No, all the walls, curtains, and barriers in the temple symbolize the great separation between holy God and sinful man. In fact, the Holy of Holies, the, the, that holy place where God's special presence dwelt, was concealed by a thick curtain and could only be entered into once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, this we learned about from Leviticus chapter 16. In fact, the entire ceremonial system and temple was founded upon the reality that man was separated from God and needed atonement through the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
This leads to the second point of how Christ is our peace, the abolishment of the law of the commandments. What does this mean? The abolishment of the law of the commandments. We see it here in verse 15. Did Christ come to abolish the law? Well, yes and no. We need to understand God's law in the three different ways it functions, and we have considered this many times. There is, of course, the civil law, which was the, the law that governed the theocracy of the nation of Israel. There's the ceremonial law, which, of course, governed the sacrifices and the, um, uh, the Aaronic priesthood and the, 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 all the things that took place in the temple. And then there's the moral law, where we have it summarized in the Ten Commandments. So what does this mean, then? the abolishment of the law of the commandments, of the ordinances. When Christ came and accomplished his saving work, he fulfilled and abolished both the civil law and the ceremonial law. We are a spiritual nation now. And so the civil law of the theocracy of the nation of Israel is abolished in Christ. Secondly, the ceremonial law is abrogated because Christ is that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We no longer need sacrifices. Christ is the one true and final sacrifice. We don't need any more priests because Christ is our priest. And on and on we could go. You see, both of these, the civil law and the ceremonial law, were peculiar to the physical nation of Israel and would no longer have a bearing upon the future church. The new covenant no longer would, in the new covenant, no longer would God's people live according to the laws of ancient Israel or perform the ceremonies which anticipated the coming of the Messiah. Makes sense. These laws were abrogated in Christ. But what about the moral law? Didn't Christ state in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not come to abolish the law? But to fulfill the law, well, this is true. And Christ did satisfy the demands of the moral law on behalf of his people. However, the moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments was not abolished. Rather, it would serve, the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, would serve as a guide for the Christian life, teaching us how to walk with God and to please him as his redeemed children. Understanding the role of the moral law in the Christian life abolishes any semblance of what we call antinomianism, which is that since we are forgiven, we no longer need to pay attention to the law or to how we live. So the yes and no answer to our earlier question, did Christ come to abolish the law, makes sense only when it is made clear that he abolished the ceremonial law, but not the moral law. And it is the ceremonial law as related to the temple sacrifices and holy days that Paul is speaking of here in verse 15. And it's that which Christ abolished in order to do what? To make that one new man, both Jew and Gentile together. One new man in Christ with the ceremonial law intact, there would be no chance for a unified people of God consisting of Jews and Gentiles. But Christ fulfilled and abolished the ceremonial and civil laws in Israel, creating one new man in Christ. And this leads us to the third point under the first heading of how Christ is our peace. The creation of a new man in Christ. Look at me at verse 15 again. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Notice that language, that he might create in himself one new man. This is union with Christ language. Again, as we've been learning in the book of Romans, over and over and over again, we come back to this all-important and central doctrine of union with Christ. I heard one of the best sermons I've ever heard from uh, an African-American preacher several years ago who preached union with Christ, this great doctrine, 
in order, in fact, he was preaching a part of this text, as I'm remembering here. And it was the best sermon to help us understand why there should not be these divisions in the life of the church between whites and blacks or whites and Asians, or other kinds of ethnicities. When Christ came, dear ones, he broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And think about that wall of hostility. You shall not pass this wall. If you do, you will die. That's what they saw. Not quite the, uh, the, the marquee you know, welcome sign that you would hope for. The divisive laws and commandments were fulfilled and abolished by Christ's death on the cross. God brought together both Jews and Gentiles in Christ. They were once at enmity with each other, hating one another, but now they are one in Christ. Calvin comments on the uniqueness of this unity as being that which only can be had or created in Jesus Christ. Quote, this is Calvin. When the apostle says that he might make in himself one new man, he turns away the Ephesians from viewing the diversity of men, all the differences, and bids them look for unity nowhere but in Christ. You know, when disunity begins to emerge in the life of, the, of a church, and I'm thankful to God, thank you, God, that after nine years, you know, we celebrated nine years just a couple of weeks ago in this church plant, not church plant anymore, but started out that way. It's been nine years, and we have been uh, blessed to not have any major divisions or disunity. When division and disunity emerges, it's usually because someone or a group or a faction begins to add to the Ten Commandments, Commandment 11, Commandment 12, Commandment 13, and let's come up with some other things to make ourselves feel really spiritual because we're all focused on this added commandment and we're doing pretty good at it. And let's look down on others who don't. And let's make it the main focus. And let's, let's make it the main focus of every conversation and meeting. It's the way division happens in the life of a church. And so Calvin so powerfully reminds us of this. And the apostle says that he might make in himself one new man. He turns away the Ephesians from viewing the diversity of men and bids them look for unity nowhere but in Christ. He goes on, to whatever extent the two might differ in their former condition, in Christ they have become one man. In Christ we are one, amen? In Christ we are one man. You may have a different skin color, you may have a different background, you may have a different education, you may have... Uh, a different amount of money in the bank. You may have a different family background. You may root for a different sports team. You know, our former associate pastor, Ross Hodges, was provoking me just before the evening worship service this evening, sending me a, a text about how Auburn was just a little bit of head of Clemson and some category, I can't remember what it was. I looked at it really quickly, but it, it's funny. But, you know, we, we, we don't have division over all these things the world divides over. We are, if we are in Christ, we are one in Him. And those dividing walls of hostility are, are broken down. We are bid to look for our unity nowhere, but nowhere but in the gospel. So, you see, the only way these two radically different people, the Jew and the Gentile, will ever have peace and unity is through faith in Christ and his atoning death on the cross and their focus on that. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. 
the author and finisher of your faith. Look not to things on the earth, but look above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Look to the Republican Party. No, it doesn't say that. Look to this particular way of educating your children. No, it doesn't say that. It says look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Paul said we preach Christ and him crucified. We do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ and him crucified. And so these Jews and Gentiles, they've been separated by enmity and hostility for centuries, but now they are brought together as one man in Christ. And here we come to our final subpoint, demonstrating how Christ has become our peace objectively, and that is the reconciliation of both Jew and Gentile to God. The reconciliation of both Jew and Gentile to God. Look with me at verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we come to the great reconciliation that makes all lesser forms of reconciliation possible. You see, I know that it's possible to reconcile with someone who I have disagreements with, who maybe even has slandered me because I've been reconciled to God and I didn't deserve that. Not for a moment do I ever deserve all that God has given to me in Christ. Not for a moment. Not on my best day as a Christian do I deserve for one second anything that God has given to me in Christ. And so it's because of that reconciliation that then I can have the lesser reconciliations. I can reconcile where there's been enmity and hostility. This is the great reconciliation, God and man, that makes all lesser forms of reconciliation possible. Indeed, in this verse, we are told of the reconciliation between God and sinners procured for us at the cross, at the cross. And this is something we shouldn't overlook here this evening. Apart from Christ, there is hostility between God and men. If we're hearing here about how there's no more hostility, then there must have been hostility prior. And this is true. Between God and man, apart from Christ, there is hostility. And it goes both ways. There's no neutrality. Man is hostile towards God. We, like sheep, have gone astray, every man wanting to go his own way. Romans 5.10 says that, In our natural state, we are enemies of God. So man is hostile towards God, but also God is hostile towards sinful man. Ephesians 2, 3, we talked about it earlier. The wrath of God. We are children of wrath. The wrath of God is on those, and that judgment, in Romans uh, teaches us, is building up. It's piling up over time if we are outside of Christ. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God if we are not in Christ. But here is the great news this evening. At the cross, where Jesus was killed for us, something else was also killed because of Christ's death, namely the hostility between God and his guilty people. The hostility between God and sinners. If we miss this, we miss the whole meaning of this section. Indeed, the whole meaning of the Bible Christ's death on the cross objectively secured reconciliation between God and sinners. In Christ, the hostility between God and man is killed. It's done away with. No more barriers. No more walls. No more separation. You can boldly approach the throne of grace through the blood of the cross. No more priests and thick curtains shielding us from the holiness and the wrath of God. We now boldly go. The curtain has been torn in two. Christ's blood has atoned for our sins. And so there are no more barriers. And because of this, all barriers between Jews and Gentiles 
are also destroyed, thereby uniting all people in Christ who exercise true God-given faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, quote, The cause of the enmity has been removed. And as men see that in Christ, the enmity disappears. The Jew who really understands the doctrine of Christ no longer separates himself in terms of the ceremonial law. He says that it is finished in Christ. I, therefore, am now in the same position as a Gentile. And the Gentile also sees that there is no longer that peculiar distinction between him and the Jew, and that the way is in Christ for him as for the Jews. So they all come together to God in the same way, in and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, end quote. I'm sorry I can't do that in the Welsh accent. It sounds much better when Lloyd-Jones is, is preaching it, but that is the truth. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we are humbled to the dust, recognizing who we were outside of Him, who we are in Him, and thus willing to reconcile and happy and delighted to reconcile with our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be different than us. This, by the way, this, by the way, is no license or accommodation to a kind of false unity, which is unity outside the truth. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was a big ecumenical movement where everybody was talking about unity and peace between denominations and churches and so forth. And what you began to discover was this new motto, doctrine divides, service unites. Let's unite together in service. Let's not worry about doctrine, and let's all come together. But that's totally unrealistic. There must be doctrine preached from pulpits. There must be something preached and taught. And once you begin marginalizing the truth, that unity becomes superficial. It's not true unity in Christ. You see, unity, true unity is in Christ. True unity is in Christ. So all the walls of separation have been broken down in Him. In Him, all men and women are leveled before God to the same place, namely that of a guilty sinner, a guilty sinner who needs the grace of God. When we truly understand this, our hearts are inclined toward humble unity in the church with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what socioeconomic status, occupation, skin color, ethnic background, or whatever other diversities there may be, the heart of a sinner who has truly been reconciled to God through faith in Christ is a heart that is willing to be united to God's people no matter what differences there might be. Think of the book of James, how many times it encourages us to be united in Christ. This brings us to verses 17 and 18, to our second heading, Christ the preacher of peace, proclaiming the gospel to the nations. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice, by the way, the Trinitarian emphasis here. All throughout the book of Ephesians, we have an emphasis upon God, the Holy Trinity. We are Trinitarians. We must think as Trinitarians. We are not Unitarians. I walked by the, uh, the, the old Unitarian church downtown uh, this past week. We are not Unitarians. We are Trinitarians. We believe in God as uh, three persons and yet one God. When you think of the three persons, you think of the one God. When you think of the one God, you think of the three persons. It, we can't make total sense of this in our finite minds, but it is true. And here we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit actively engaged in saving us and breaking down these walls and making us one in Christ. And here we learn in these verses that Christ is not only the source of our peace with God and each other, he is also the preacher of peace. Christ is the preacher of peace to those who are far off 
and to those who are near. Notice what it says there. Christ is the preacher of peace. It says there, and he came, he came, that is Christ came, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Here we learn that Christ is not only the source of peace, but the preacher of peace. But in what sense? In what sense is he the preacher of peace? I think John Stott is right when he makes the case that Christ is only a preacher of peace after his death and resurrection because the peace that he is speaking of here is that peace which was achieved where? At the cross, through his flesh. In addition, we read in verse 17 that Christ preached peace to these Ephesian believers, but Christ did not travel to Asia Minor. Isn't that interesting? Christ didn't travel to Asia Minor during his public ministry. So what does this mean? He's a a preacher of peace to you. Well, it was the Spirit of Christ preaching his word through his apostles that brought peace with God and peace between these fellow believers, Jew and Gentiles in Ephesus. It was the Spirit of Christ preaching his word through his apostles that brought peace with God, reconciliation with God, and with their fellow believers in Ephesus. This is truly the case, and I believe it is, then we must understand Christ's preaching of peace to be that which goes forth from the mouths of his apostles and preachers, and in a very real sense, from all Christians who would share the gospel with others. Stott puts it this way, quote, Jesus Christ is still preaching peace in the world today, and I would add, by his Spirit, through the lips of his followers. For it is truly a wonderful fact that whenever we proclaim peace, it is Christ who proclaims it through us. Whenever we preach the gospel, Christ in us, the hope of glory, is ultimately the one that's bringing that word of peace. The world. It states that this preaching went forth to those who were far off. And to those who were near, that is, those who were in the covenant community and those who were outside of the covenant community, those who were in the church and those who were without, outside of the church. And here's an important application. Gospel proclamation must be carried out inside the church as well as outside the church. We all need the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. We need to be rewired and rebooted every time we come to church on the Lord's Day. We need to hear the truth of the gospel, that God sent his son into the world to die for sinners. And in him we have forgiveness, imputed righteousness, and eternal life. We need to hear the gospel preached whenever we are together. The Bible points us to the gospel. But secondly, those, of course, outside the church need to hear this gospel. Both need to hear the gospel preached. We need it to be nourished and strengthened in our faith, and those outside the church need it so they can be brought into it. They might be saved. Our preaching of the gospel must be to those who are near and to those who are far off. Here we have a glorious summary of all that has been said, namely, that in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, people from all backgrounds, from all nations, have access to God the Father by the same Holy Spirit who indwells them both. Look at me at verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is a true picture of the Christian life. All of God's people, saved by grace, particularly in their local churches, coming to the Father boldly with confidence, as we learned this morning, through the same Spirit and all through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where our oneness is. Our oneness is in Christ. Our oneness is in the Spirit. Our oneness is in the fact that we have one Father and God over all. 
Now, how do these truths apply to us today? How should we live as a result of these truths? Number one, let us not seek peace with God through any other means than the one in which he himself has provided. May we not be so arrogant to come up with our own means of having peace with God when God has provided us with his precious son through his life and his death and his resurrection that he has become our peace. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is true, objective peace with God. Not a feeling, not a feeling, not a, a hope-so kind of hope, but a new and a right standing with God in Christ. When we have this kind of peace with God, we can rest assured that there is no longer any hostility between God and us, no longer any separation, no longer any condemnation, only the love of a merciful father for his redeemed child. To be sure, this love sometimes entails discipline, but only for our growth and our sanctification. Dear ones, you need to be reminded that it's only by having, the, having this objective peace with God, being reconciled to God through the blood of Christ, that we will then know and experience that subjective peace of God. We need peace with God before we have the peace of God. Passes all human understanding. Many seek the latter without having the former. Secondly, let us not let walls separate us from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for whatever reason. Christ has killed that hostility, not only between God and us, but between all of those who are in Christ Jesus. He has killed the hostility. And so let us not embrace anything that would bring unnecessary division. Of course, we have heard this text preached in relation to the grave sin of racism. And of course, racism is a wicked abomination. And it ought never to be in our hearts. And if it is, we must repent of it. And there is all kinds of racism in the world, all types of racism. And we must reject it in the life of the church. Union with Christ kills the hostility and breaks down the walls that we have created in our sinfulness. So let us demonstrate that in our lives. Let us demonstrate that here at Christ Church Presbyterian. Thirdly, let's pray for the preaching of the gospel. And let's be messengers of peace. Let's be messengers of this gospel of peace in our community. Everyone in here has been placed by God's sovereign hand into a particular sphere and particular circumstances whereby you are given the privilege to be salt and light, to give that word of peace to those who do not have peace with God. We consider this this morning. Uh, there as he described, the, the former state of these Gentiles, uh, alienated from, uh, from, from, from God and strangers to the promises. And this, this is the state of our culture. And so may we take this truth to them, this, this word of peace, which is the gospel. Remember Christ through us delivers his message of peace Peace with God through his shed blood. May we be faithful to deliver this message to a lost and dying world. Who are you praying for right now that they would be converted? Who are you lifting up before the throne of grace and asking God to work in their life and you are making yourself available and praying for the strength and boldness to approach that person, whether it's in your family or in the workplace, or a friend? Uh, who are you seeking out to bring that word of peace? Finally, 
as we come to the Lord's table? Doesn't this, as baptism does, reinforce this unity that we have in Christ? We come to this table on the same terms, all of us, as sinners saved by grace. That wall of separation has been broken down. You are encouraged to come to the Lord's table, to partake of this bread, which represents Christ's body broken for you on the cross, to drink this wine, which represents Christ's blood. And as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we are not just receiving an empty memorial, but we are receiving Christ spiritually. The Holy Spirit brings that sacramental union between Christ and his people, and we commune with him as if we were in the Holy of Holies. Christ is with his people, and here at the table we have his special presence. You say, I don't know about that, Pastor. I was taught that's not true uh, when I was growing up. There's nothing special about the table. Let me tell you about the 20 things the table is not before I talk about maybe one or two things that it is. No. In the temple, God was everywhere. And he was outside the temple, and he is everywhere because he's omnipresent. But God made it known that his special presence would be in the Holy of Holies with his people. There are many examples of this kind of special presence of the Lord. And Christ is with his people in a special way through the preaching of his gospel and through the sacraments. So as we partake at this table, we receive not an empty sign, but we receive the sign and that which it signifies, namely Jesus Christ, spiritually. We receive him and we abide in him and we are strengthened in him and comforted by his love and his presence in our lives. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that the wall of hostility has been broken down in Christ. That wall of hostility between sinners and God through Christ and that wall of hostility between sinners who are in Christ. Oh Lord, we pray for deeper unity, a greater understanding and appreciation of this glorious gospel of grace. And may you be glorified as we come to the table this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would invite you uh, to please stand as we sing together Psalm 32, What Blessedness Belongs to